What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The markets are breathing a sigh of relief on weaker-than-expected CPI data this morning. But our guest is warning, don't get too complacent. She sees inflation rising again before year-end and says when it does, stocks will sell off and you should buy the dip. She'll bring the names she's ready to scoop up. Plus, Disney hiking prices and taking a page from Netflix on passwords. Needham's Laura Martin says it's still a takeover target. She tells us who she thinks could end up buying it. And growing cyber threats are leading New York State to beef up its security spending big time. And one stock in the cyberspace up sharply today. The name and the CEO join us ahead. First, though, let's get the latest on these markets. And for more, we turn to Bob Bassani. Dow's really evaporated its gains, Bob. Yes, uh, quite surprising. The July CPI was up 0.2% month over month, 3.2% year over year. This is good news. It's supportive of the soft landing and disinflationary trend. Stocks had a great start right out of the gate, but the high print so far was at 10 a.m. Eastern time. They've been selling into the rally ever since then. The S&P was up almost 60 points. Has now been, look at this, almost flat right now. Same with the Dow. It's up over 400 points going towards the flat line. NASDAQ was up over 200 points. Uh, it, too, down rather dramatically. The Russell 2000 opened strong. It's now negative. So take a look at the weakness here. It's semiconductors and tech. So big names like NVIDIA and Micron, they were all trading up at the open, now all negative. Other big cap names like Apple, generally flat on the day. Now, there are some pockets of strength out there. A win is dragging up all the casinos. The win is seeing some demand recovery in China. Las Vegas is still strong. Well, that's good news. The refiners, I talk day after day about them. Marathon Petroleum, Phillips 66, they keep hitting new highs, even though oil's having a rare down day today. And Hilton's hitting another new high. And Marriott remains strong as well. Still, you know, there's an old saw on Wall Street. In corrections, it takes a lot longer to lose the first 5% because people buy the dip. The second 5% comes a lot quicker. Now, right now, the S&P is less than 3% from its recent highs, but it's down six of seven days, and investors are less than enthusiastic these days about supporting these recent tech gains. Guys, there's no panic out there. But there's definitely not a lot of enthusiasm. Maybe it's that time of year. Maybe it's just the stretch valuations in tech. But definitely a pause here. Bob, thank you very much. Bob Pisani. The market is or was or still sort of is cheered by the softer data this morning, making it less likely that the Fed will need to keep hiking rates. Those consumer prices were up just 3.2 percent year over year, a little less than expected. It's also well down from the 9.1 percent peak we saw last June. Jobless claims, meanwhile, those were slightly worse than expected. So is the Federal Reserve done hiking? Does that make recession less likely? Here with me now, David Zervos is chief market strategist at Jefferies and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leesman is here as well. So, Dave, I kind of want to start with this market turn. I mean, not that you're, you know, day trading or anything like that, but... Are the takeaways from the data this morning different now than they seemed at first glance? I don't think that data is really the story. I, I think the market's come a long way, Kelly. We've had an incredible year in stocks, and I think far superseded even some of the most bullish uh, forecasts. For sure. So uh, it's a healthy correction. I think 
what the Bank of Japan has done, some of the weaker data out of China. There's just a lot of things that I think are sinking in and saying maybe we shouldn't have gone that far that fast. You I think? think that, that's kind of Do you think there's view? some hiker's remorse? Or you mean, no, you mean not at the fact. So far, that, no. so fast with the rally. Yeah, but the, the market is just sort of like we kind of got ahead of ourselves, yeah. and, and I think we're taking a healthy break. I, I think at the Fed, everybody's pretty happy. I think the Fed's ecstatic about this data. I think they're ecstatic about where they sit. I think they probably, you know, we got one more CPI before the next meeting. Assuming that's not a 0.3 or 0.4, they get to sit again. I think they're in great shape going into the end of the year. Goldman, Steve, says they're done, that there was no September hike, which we've talked about. They say no November hike you know, that this is kind of it. There's not going to be the need to go again. And um, I don't know how much of a difference that makes when some people in the market are talking about when the pivot and the first cuts might come early next year. Um, It's just, that's their take. This is it. Yeah, unlike Goldman, I'm a little more humble before the future uh, and the fates. Uh, I'm probably wording it more strongly than they Pretend to know what's going to happen. I I think that they're not going to hike in September. Um, I think the data will dictate whether or not they hike in November. I don't think they're quite ready to roll out the aircraft carrier and put on the flight jacket and get up there with the mission accomplished banner in the background. Um, and, and you can see where the market is trading. Um, I do want to just take a moment, you know, market may be up, market may be down, but I, it would always pain me to live through wonderful times and not notice it. Uh, there's a quote from uh, um, the Richmond Fed put out a paper today, and I just want to read you the quote. The current cycle is the first time over the entire post-war period the FOMC has made significant progress in lowering inflation without an associated increase in the unemployment rate. Okay. So to the, extent, to, the, to the extent that David says they're ecstatic, I think they're very happy over there right now. The, 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 the movie is not over. No. Movie is not it's over. It's been one year right, since they started right, hiking. Right. It's not even been a no, full it's year been 16 since the yield It's been 16 March. months. March. 16, 16 months. What this paper shows is that by now, in previous cycles, you would have the unemployment rate rising. <sighs> and you're there. And uh, we're going to talk tomorrow, a little tease about this why. This doesn't make you nervous at all? May, of course it makes me nervous. This, to me, feels like the mission accomplished. Kelly, with Kelly the, the, the art of the job is to sit here and be nervous but not show it at all. <laughs> of course I'm nervous. I'm just saying, to this point... It has been an extraordinary run. And if you have it, you know, maybe this is one of those three-hour Scorsese movies. I don't know. Or maybe it's a normal two-hour movie and we're kind of at the end of it. Right, exactly. I mean, there is a lot left. And the next chapter is actually being written in the markets. Right. Let's let's look at what is priced in to next year. It's 140 basis points of rate cuts between Dees 2023 and Dees 2024. That's the spread between the SOFA rates. 140. Yeah. And that's what the market is pricing in. So that's feeding into equity valuations, that's feeding into spreads. Look, I think the market's got a lot more optimism than the Fed. The Fed is far more cautious, far more nervous, far more, let's take, as Steve said, this is not wave out the banner time. This is not mission accomplished time. And there's no, we're done, we're great. I don't think they're saying that at all anytime soon. I think they're behind the scenes. They're super happy. No, and I, I they're not going to. They're not going to wave that flag. Well, I, the, I would acknowledge the, F, the FOMC held a secret meeting today, and they raised rates. <laughs> it's true. What happened today is that rates got more restrictive. The inflation rate came down, and the real funds rate went up today. Obviously, they didn't have a secret meeting. Stop with your Twitter nonsense yes. over there. But but here's what happened. Yeah, and this is this is the plan the Fed has in place. I guess you could call it a slow boil, and I'll let David address the, the, the equity aspect of that. 
But let's say inflation does continue this trajectory. Guys, I have those two big numbers in the back. I want to show you where we're at on a three-month average annual basis. And these are very good numbers. We're 3% on the core, 1.9% on the headline. These are great numbers. If they continue like this and, and continue downward trajectory, what's going to happen is the Fed is going to become increasingly restrictive over time. And this will help in this inflation fight. It's like pouring additional water on that fire to make sure that it's out. And the Fed seems to have the market convinced that it will be in this high range for a while. I get, David, the first rate cut built in in March or February or March or, uh, or, or April March, of next yeah. year, where it's a 50 percent or higher. And so the, he, the, for seven months, they've got the market, at least at this point, on board with that g- uh, growing restrictiveness of, of policy. Only thing to mention in their flying the ointment, oil prices. <clears throat> you know, if we see some reacceleration in the headline or the way that they have to figure that out. You put out a piece the other day, Dave, I thought was interesting, kind of calling for a return to the Greenspan days when the Fed was almost inscrutable. I would argue their transparency becomes similarly inscrutable because we hear so many different opinions from from so many different people. You know, is there a real signal these days or not? I mean, I know there's been a big change in the communications regime, but what do you think would make more sense going forward? I mean, I think we've all watched forward guidance get pushed aside at the ECB, at the Fed. I think the BOJ did a great job at confusing the market with what the end of yield curve control looks like. Uh, are they at 1%? Are they at 50 bips? We don't know. Every, every night it's a new, uh, a new target, which is kind of cool. And they, they got away with unwinding a really complicated policy without creating a lot of problems. Uh, they did, I think rates did go up generally at the long end because of the BOJ. And that sure. I think the Fed is looking at and probably smiling. I was going to say, what would the they Fed's, don't have to do as much? If the Fed looked at that and wanted to take some lessons away for this next chapter, what would those lessons be? What, what's their equivalent? I, I think the takeaway for the Fed is very simple. I mean, long rates are less anchored globally if Japanese investors can go home and get a 1% yield instead of a 0% yield. And that is some tightening that the Fed doesn't have to do because the BOJ gets to do mm-hmm. a little for them. I think that's at the margin helpful in the debate at the next meeting, Steve, uh, about should we go, should we not go? If the Bank of Japan's given you a little bit more, you don't have to do as much. Yeah, so I think you got important. others in the game. I think another maybe underreported or underappreciated uh, development is this so-called deflation in China. I don't like to call one month's worth of negative numbers deflation. Um, it is one month's worth of negative numbers. But, but certainly they do not have inflation. China is a big export economy. Goods prices have been negative. Goods prices have not been as negative as has been expected. It could be that the offset to the oil problem you're saying could come, at least in part, from China. I'm totally. interested in watching that. And what David's talking about is another aspect of that potentially coming from Japan, restrictive. So we could get some help globally. And by the way, the U.S., has been leading the world in two things. We're number one in interest rates when it comes to the developed world. I'm not sure we want to claim that title, but we, we've had a bigger decline in inflation, a lower inflation rate. We haven't had the increase in unemployment, and our GDP is looking pretty remarkable um, if these, these third quarter numbers, take them with a grain of salt because it's very early in the quarter. But because June was so strong, the starting point for the rest of the quarter is they don't have to do very much and still get a pretty strong number. Real quickly, we have a 30-year bond auction. We've had a string of really strong demand this week, kind of to your point about global appetite for yields. Rick Santelli uh, joins us with the results. Rick, what do you make of it? Well, threes were strong, tens were strong, and thirties were not. Uh, 4.189 is the yield. The when issued market was trading well below that, around 4, 4.17 and a half. So it tailed rather collie-ish. 
uh, long tail there. C minus is the grade for those 23 billion 30 years that put the final tombstone on 103 billion of treasury coupon supply. Auction just did not go well. Pricing was the big negative. Uh, bid to cover was pretty good. Direct bidders was quite good at 19.6. You had indirects and dealer takedowns, the weakest level since February, but not by far off the 10 auction average. So it was a pricing issue, and that makes sense. The long end of the market actually has been a bit more confusing, and the further down the yield curve you go the other way towards 20s, 10s, 5s, 2s, the more aggressive buyers you seem to find. Kelly, back to you. Rick, thank you very much. And guys, let's just maybe put a pin in it uh, to wrap up the discussion. We come away on a day where, okay, the jobless claims looked a little softish. You know, some of us are still <laughs> worried about what's going to happen. Um, there was huge demand for treasuries earlier this week, but suddenly on the longer <clears throat> end, people aren't so sure. And I've seen more comments about how this, this idea of even if the Fed funds goes back to 2%, you know, maybe the long end stays higher for longer. And I don't know if you want to weigh in on I'll that. Just Point you back to our discussion before you, you went to Rick. I mean, the BOJ has untethered the long end globally a little bit, and I don't think that's the end of it for Japan. I think markets are looking at that, and that's an important part of the tightening process. I think the Fed is probably happier, to be honest, with a four to four and a half percent tenure note than with a three and a half to four percent tenure note. All else equal, right here, that does a little tightening for them, takes some pressure off the short end, which has been a problem for the the, the banks particularly the, the regional banks, as the funding costs went up. So this is a better tightening. This is, in spirit of Steve's tightening, it helps you with the real rate structure kind of right. going higher, and it does a little bit more at the long end rather than the short I will, end. I, I, will, I like, I will, I like will, what we're seeing. I will add, though, end. David, Kelly, who is uh, attuned to some of the risks out there, it's been a very long time since supply mattered to the bond market. Sure. I think supply matters now. I think some of these big auctions, and that's why, I'm listening to Rick. I listened to Rick yesterday. He gave the 10-year an A minus. That was a very important development. Today's 30-year is another important development because what's happened is the Treasury is going to be converting some of these short-term bills into long-term. And the question about how much the bond market globally can digest, China's decline in exports means it has fewer dollars to recycle back into the bond market. Sure. It's a risk out there, but I will say this important thing, which is uh, if I use August 2nd as the start date, Ackman is back in the black ah, on his 30-year short. Is he? I don't know, Bill, if you want to call me and tell me where you're actually. But <laughs> look, it was a hedge and it was a, a for-profit thing, but but I've been following this. He is, what was the lovely uh, thing, 420? So, so, so 4, 416 is 416. where we, we have is the print of the day of August 2nd, we're at 419, 14. He was underwater for a little bit, or he was uh, sort of neutral, but today uh, it looks like he might have made a few dollars. No, that is noteworthy. At about 4.2, I think we're heading back towards, yep, those year-to-date highs if we get there. Yeah, that I mean, if, if it's a hedge and it was a cheap hedge relative to what was out there, then it, it probably pays off without being higher, but in any event, it's what we're in a, watching. In a world of a 525 funds rate, 420 on a 30-year is still uh, a pretty juicy level. With the in idea, the sense of it's it's frothy. It's an expensive. That we get year. a bull steepening, though, which is the idea that the short rates yeah. would remain, uh, and you'd get back to, uh, what, what's the word we decided on, Kelly? Disinverted. Disinverted. <laughs> a disinverted yield curve. 
Gentlemen, I think everybody would be happier with a disinverted yield curve. Indeed. Thank you so much for your time today. David Zervos and Steve Leisman, I'll see you again soon. And while today's CPI reading was in line with estimates, my next guest says inflation is likely to keep rising between now and year end, and stocks haven't yet priced that possibility in. She's pointing to some key data that's already trending upward, like copper and oil and housing and service prices. And if the Fed does have to get more aggressive and we sell off, she's prepared to buy the dip. For more, let's bring in Nancy Tangler, CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. All right, Nancy, jump on in. You probably caught a little bit of that previous discussion. So, uh, you know, I know it's not like you're going to be out of the market, but what are you doing here? Well, Kelly, I think um, one clarification, I think there's a possibility that inflation will tick up. But we, we have been in the camp and there are others there that have said, previous inflationary periods, uh, and there were seven in modern history, uh, what we've seen is that inflation is symmetrical on the way up and on the way down, but it's not necessarily linear. And that's what I think may happen is that we'll get a surprise and market will be caught flat-footed. Um, that's an opportunity, we think, to go back in and buy some of the tech names that we were buying last fall, have been trimming uh, in the second quarter, uh, and may want to own more of as the secular narrative and tailwind of of, uh, digitization uh, continues and we, we want to have more we may want to get more exposure sure so what's on the list you know if you're are you expecting for sure more market weakness in in kind of the months quarter or two to come I think it's a fair. Um, I think it's a fair bet. Um, you know, we we ran pretty hard, pretty fast, not just from October, but certainly year to date. Uh, I d I don't think stocks are frothy, but on average, every twelve months we get a correction. Historically, we haven't yet really seen that. We sort of tried in July first week. I think it would be healthy for the market if we got a pullback let people take a breath. Uh, you know, the, the volume uh, this time of year is pretty, pretty spotty. So I think that might just be a continued catalyst. And we're seeing the futures up strong almost every morning and then a sell-off into right. the end. So that, that usually tells us that we're going to see some sort of a correction. And but, but we think we're in a bull market. So I don't think you want to run away. This isn't, uh, I don't think this is 2022. It's just an opportunity to, to reposition. And right. that's actually what we will do. You are launching an ETF today, Nancy. The Tangler, I'll call it the Tangler ETF, TGLR, 25 to 30 positions intended to produce a dividend yield. And is that reflective of how you've, you know, is, is this timing coincidence or not, you know, with kind of the outlook you foresee for these markets? Well, I, I thank you for that, Kelly. I would say that August is probably not the best month to launch an ETF, but we we did it anyway. It was like when I finished my book, my agent said, why this book? Why now? And I said, because I just finished it. Right. So we're ready to go. Um, and what, what it does reflect, though, is I've been managing money since the mid-80s using this strategy, relative dividend yield. I don't have to earn, estimate earnings because management's doing that for us through the, the dividend. They set it as a portion of long-term sustainable earnings power. So we get access to some really interesting names, fallen angel growth stocks that you wouldn't normally see in a dividend growth strategy. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's worked. And so we've turned away uh, a lot of people that don't meet our minimums. This was a way for us to provide access, um, and it's a core strategy. So I, I just, it just made sense to us right now or next month or last month. Right. But certainly, yeah. yeah. And it's also interesting because if you're expecting inflation to be a little bit sticky, I mean, that's going to have a lot to do with how attractive dividend yields are and at what price and where rates are. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of balls in the air right now. 
That's right. And and remember, you know, 9% dividend growth historically has been has outpaced inflation. It didn't do it last year. But if you can get growing dividends, uh, the compounding of that and the protection in declining markets is powerful. And if you're buying companies that are already, um, you know, depressed for a reason, I mean, think we were buying Apple in 2013. Yield was 3% above the 10-year at that time, and nobody wanted to own the stocks because they weren't considering services, just a handset company. Well, those are the kind of names we get access to using relative yield. It's it's a powerful tool. Been using it for 40 years. It still works. So we're pretty excited about it. And then finally, if I'm not mistaken, you're still interested in some of the names like Google and Oracle and Amazon, clean energy beneficiaries, AI plays. Is it just those three in particular? Well, those are those are important because the TAM for for cloud is three trillion by uh, 2026, and and when we get there, we're only going to be at about 30 percent penetration. So it's cloud growth is decelerating, or at least it has been. We think it will probably accelerate some, and particularly because AI is a big demand on cloud computing. So we like those three. Oracle's kind of the cheapest cloud uh, AI. Uh, computing platform, Oracle, their appointment of Ruth Porat we thought was super important. And then we had compared uh, Andy Jassy to, he was to uh, Jeff Bezos, what Tim Cook was um, to, to Stephen Jobs. And so we, we like that name. He They did deliver on earnings uh, this last quarter. So I'd wait. I don't think you need to chase any of these names. You wait for the pullback and then you step in and buy them. And then in clean energy, I mean, there's such a mismatch between what the administration is projecting in terms of cafe standards, which would drive us to like 100 percent EVs in 2032. But we can't even produce enough of the metals and, and minerals that we need to produce 18 million EVs currently. So I think that mismatch will continue to be rewarded in the market. One way to play that is Albemarle, which is lithium. Yeah. Uh, if, if we were producing 18 million vehicles today, we'd be using uh, 88% of the available current production of lithium. So we have a long way to go, but the supply-demand mismatch, I think, is going to be important to these names. It's funny you say that we're going to talk to Fryer later in the show. They're a battery battery maker. kind of going to talk about the same issue between the um, hopes, the aspirations, and the reality for this space right now. Right. Nancy, thanks as always for your time today. Thanks, Kelly. We appreciate it. Nancy Tangler with Laffer Tangler. Still ahead, Disney taking a page out of Netflix's playbook, but will it be enough to stem subscriber losses? Shares are now up about 4.5% today, despite hovering near their 52-week low and flat since Bob Iger returned as CEO. Are they seriously a takeover target? We'll ask Needham's Laura Martin about that next. Plus, CyberArk having its best day since November after a strong earnings beat and a full-year guidance hike. The CEO joins us to explain where the biggest threats are still lurking. And as we go to break, here's a broad look at the markets. As we mentioned, the Dow erasing a 455-point gain, still up 75, while the S&P's only at 4. The Nasdaq clinging on to a 17-point increase, and the Russell's down 8. Ten-year back above 4%. The exchange is back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 
Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Disney hiking prices on its ad-free streaming tiers and an attempt to grow profits even as subscriber growth slows in the U.S. CEO Bob Iger also announcing plans to crack down on password sharing as he tries to turn the company around. One of my next guests expects another year of weak earnings and says Disney could now be a takeover target. Joining me, Needham Senior Internet and Media Analyst Laura Martin and Mountain CEO Mark Douglas. Welcome to both of you, Laura. I'll start with you. Um, the market's turning around We're in a tough tape this afternoon too, a tougher one. Uh, why do you think, what do you think it sees in Disney's results? You know, their free cash flow is higher than expected. Their cost cutting, they said they're going to come in above their promise, 5.3, billion. We People really like the another 30% price increase on their streaming services. And this notion of ESPN, they said they weren't going to sell it, but they're looking for partners to help them roll it out to be an over-the-top service, which I think people are really optimistic about the take-up, like the, the throughput rate of that. So I think all those were positives that were incremental information from the call. How much time does that buy Bob Iger? Well, he's got uh, he's in eight months worth and they extended his contract for another two years. So he's got three years to pull this off. Or, and if he can't, you know, I think he does a parallel, try to sell off all or parts. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he'll run parallel paths, try to turn it around so he can get a better price. But ultimately, I think it need, this industry, the whole industry needs to consolidate, including the Walt Disney Company. Let's circle back to that in just a moment. But, Mark, in the meantime, I'm curious for your take on their leaning, especially on some of the ad tiers, just like Netflix. Uh, What's that? What are the implications of that? Well, I think fundamentally you can't shrink yourself to greatness. So, you know, a strategy of like like it may be the strategy to sell off parts and do things, but fundamentally they're down in terms of user adoption, basically people buying their products, using their products, going to parks in every category. And I think they keep blaming other people and they have to look at themselves and say, how do we get people to love these products again and then grow our way to greatness? Definitely with the media and bringing more ad revenue into it, it's a way to drive a lot more profitability, and they should do that too. But they have to get people to love Disney products again, especially theme parks and the streaming services. Mark, just to go a little bit further on that, if I'm Bob Iger then, how much can I do at one time? You know, improve the core brand and make all the easy, while kind of polishing, I know to Laura's point, you can, the whole, if the whole idea is to even polish things up for sale, maybe you can do two things at once, but there's a big difference between thinking strategically about fit and really sort of putting your head down and focusing on core execution. Well, that's the, that's the issue right now. If you're going to put out a vision to drive profitability, that's going to work against growth. And so I think they have to choose. And personally, as a big fan of Disney, I'm not 
infatuated with you know this focus on on profits over anything. I think they have to go the opposite direction and mm. say we're going to spend whatever it takes to get people to get Disney magic to get people to love all our brands again, including like it's not like people are watching less sports or want to watch less Star Wars. Like the people want these products and they have to bring the magic back in order, I think, to solve these problems. Right. Except, but they might be watching less ESPN or they might be watching fewer recent Disney movies. Laura, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the issues going on, I think we shouldn't underestimate the negative impact of the DeSantis feud. I mean, they're saying that it has nothing to do with why Walt Disney World attendance is weak. I call shenanigans. Um, and I think the international parks were very strong in the quarter and it really bailed them out. But the U.S. parks are weak. And I think part of that is the drama over, you know, the DeSantis feud. So the, just kind of building on that point before we I, I do want to quickly ask about about Twitter or X if I can. But, uh, Laura, you've mentioned or mooted or even just uh, even now it sort of floated the idea of them being a target. The widely accepted suitor would be Apple. But are we all thinking through this correctly or do you see it playing out a little bit differently here? Well, I mean, I like the idea. I think Apple really needs a piece of content to push this vision of the future, these goggles it's pushing. And Disney has the highest quality libraries and content creators with its Pixar, Star Wars and Marvel, not only franchises, but just those best in class new content creators. So really like that idea for Apple. He was asked about it and he basically said his response was we couldn't get it through regulatory, meaning right. Apple get it through, which is not a saying we wouldn't sell it or we don't think it's a great idea. It just says he doesn't think it can get the regulatory. So if we have a Republican president, that answer then changes because all the regulators then get appointed by a Republican uh, president instead. So stay tuned. Exactly. Very. It's like its own most interesting movie. Um, real quickly, I just want to play for you both what X or Twitter, uh, all right, X Corp CEO Linda Yaccarino told us earlier about how it's now a much healthier and safer platform today than it was a year ago. Listen. Since acquisitions, we have built brand safety and content moderation tools that have never existed before at this company. If you're going to post something that's illegal or against the law, you're gone. Zero tolerance. Real quickly, Mark, to you first. Um, and how's it going? In these, are they early, early days or late days for Twitter or for X or whatever we're calling it? Well, I think Twitter's being run like a startup, but it's a mature company and people, a lot of people don't want to see how the sausage is made. And, but ultimately, if they keep iterating, they can iterate themselves to a right, the right formula and somewhat of this vision of the everything social media app. So I think, you know, from the outside, it looks very hectic, but I think over time, um, they can get there if they just keep iterating and finding the right sweet spot with the, with the people who love Twitter and, and more people who potentially want to love it. Laura, I know you cover a lot of their competitors. I'm still seeing a lot of Cheech and Chong ads. Don't know if that says something about me personally, um, but do you see them as kind of clawing back ad share? I do not. We, uh, you know, our channel checks say that 80% of brands have left Twitter and Linda Yaccarino, really, those are her relationships. She had to do something. This is something to be done. Great. I think it's too little, too late. I do not think brands will come back to Twitter for no other reason that you can't tell that tomorrow Elon Musk doesn't put out a 
tweet and did completely undermine your ad campaign, which typically lasts for weeks, not, hmm. you know, so I think it's just too unpredictable. And I think there's too many choices. Like TikTok is like conquering the world right now. So there's other ways that you can reach consumers. Um, and Twitter doesn't have enough video either. So I think it's too little, too late. I don't think it's going to work to bring Great back points. Brands. It is going to be a tough slog and um, maybe the other most interesting movie to watch play out right now. Laura Martin and Mark Douglas, thank you both so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Still ahead on the exchange, inflation might be easing in some parts of the industries, but try telling that to renters in Manhattan. Robert Frank is here with what's driving prices higher and what's behind the divide with the rest of the country. We're back after this. Dow's up 55. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Pippa Stevens with your CNBC News update. The U.S. and Iran are reportedly planning a prisoner swap. The State Department confirms five imprisoned Americans are now out of jail and under house arrest. According to a lawyer for one of the prisoners, it's the first step of a planned exchange for several jailed Iranians and the unfreezing of billions of dollars in Iranian assets. In order to comply with sanctions, Iran would only be allowed to access the funds for food, medicine and humanitarian aid. North Korean state media says leader Kim Jong-un fired his top general and ordered the military to step up war preparations in what he called an offensive way. The state media reported that Kim's meeting also discussed plans against an unnamed enemy. And the Emmy Awards are being moved to January, nearly a four-month delay. The Academy and broadcast partner Fox announced the new date today. The TV awards show was originally postponed in light of the ongoing actor and writer strikes in Hollywood. Kelly, back over to you. Thank you, Pippa Stevens. We'll see you shortly. Coming up, CyberArk rallying after raising its forecast. We'll talk to the CEO about the quarter and the threat that AI poses to corporate security. The exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of CyberArk are up nearly 13% after reporting better-than-expected earnings. The cyber firm posted a surprise profit of $0.03 per share versus the $0.13 loss analysts expected. Subscription revenue growth in particular soared to $106 million, a 61% increase year-over-year. The company also upped full-year guidance. All of that said, the shares are still about 18% below their 2021 highs. Joining me now in an Exchange exclusive is Matt Cohen. He is the CEO of CyberArk. Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks, Kelly. Good to be here with you. And there's so many different ways to do cybersecurity. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in it. You guys really talk about identity security, is that right? I mean, in very layman's terms, describe to me sort of where you are uh, in the in the cyber realm and, and the significance of what you do. Sure. Yeah. Th- think about it that we all have our, our digital identity. It's the credentials that we use to log into our computer and to access data and information that sits within our enterprise. And ultimately, when bad actors are out there looking to breach into organizations and steal critical data, critical information, they're trying to steal that identity. Now, that identity might be associated with me or you. It might also be associated with what we call machine identities or the applications themselves within organizations. What what CyberArk does 
uh, and is our is our mission is to make sure that we can secure all those identities, whether they're trying to access infrastructure on prem or in the cloud, and to make sure that the the privileged pathway is locked down, and ultimately we can make organizations more secure. You know, I thought it was significant that we also today heard from New York State, which is spending, I want to say it's something like $90 million in the new budget, specifically on helping um, municipalities defend themselves. It had a really bad instance on Long Island where uh, court systems, even some hospital systems were shut down and affected for months. So even though it's fallen out of the news headlines, it feels to us anecdotally like, hey, this ransomware must have gotten better. What's really happening on the ground as you see it? I think that's that's very true. The, the threat landscape itself is is really exploding and not in the right direction. You know, we recently com, uh, completed an identity security uh, threat landscape, and and that landscape mentioned the fact that you know over over 99 percent of our of our customers and and prospects out there anticipate an identity related breach in the year to come. Over 80 percent actually experienced a ransomware attack in the last year. So when you start to look at that data and information and, and you understand the digital transformation that organizations are going through, you see that the, the ability for bad actors, hackers, organized crime, nation states to wreak havoc within organizations is particularly concerning. And I think when you speak to the investment going on there in the, in the state of New York, which is you know really uh, massive, if you actually look at the 600 million, I think that they were talking about overall, it's really focused on the idea of how do we shore up an overall cybersecurity strategy, not only for the enterprises, but for our, for our local governments uh, uh, around the United States. Yeah, we look at the performance of the hack ETF year to date. It's up 15 percent. Obviously, you guys are up about 24 percent. You've got, uh, according to you, about half of Fortune 500 companies using the product, Aflac, Citigroup, Accenture, you know, a lot of these major firms. So where do you see trends when you raise your guidance? Where do you see trends for the next year? And why were you able to deliver an earnings beat? Was there something going on on the cost side of things as well? So I, I think when we think about the growth side of the story, and, and we were able to deliver an exceptional quarter, 40% ARR growth, 24% revenue growth, and beating across really all our metrics and able to raise our full year outlook, it really is on that trend of customers understanding that as identities proliferate within organizations, as environments become more complex in the hybrid and cloud world, and as these attack methods become more innovative, that they need to place in the center of that an identity security platform like CyberArk provides. And it, it just creates a, a, a lot of room for us to run in the growth vector, not only throughout the rest of this year, for, but for years to come. On the profit side, you know, we've been going through a subscription SaaS transition, and we're actually exiting the trough of that transition. Now it's good news for the long run, but it's taken us a little while to catch up and, and we've been able to now start to really accelerate the profit side of the business back to where we were before that transition started. Fair enough, no, that's the model everybody seems to be chasing these days. Artificial intelligence, um, what, what has that meant so far for the cybersecurity business? So, so AI, you know, we can't get through any conversation without really talking about it, is, is really a double-edged sword as it relates to this, this, this cyber world. At one level, you have the bad actors out there innovating now at an even more exponential rate. And what you see there is that traditional attack methods that have maybe waned a little bit in some effectiveness can now be boosted up by the leverage and use of the AI technology. And you see this kind of race towards innovation 
within the within the attackers, within the bad actors, that all of us on the on the enterprise side or on the good side need to respond to. And so it really comes to things within cybersecurity, the same concept. How can we infuse AI into the technologies we provide into the market to make them more effective? Not only so that they can spot the threats more, but also so that they can ensure deployment is more successful, more robust, and that the controls that need to be placed are placed more effectively. We at CyberArk are investing millions in AI and embedding it into our solutions so that we can fight the innovation that's happening on the other side right. with innovation on our side. It, that's why NVIDIA, you know, some of these places have been a good place to be. You guys are playing offense, uh, playing defense by playing offense, I should say. Matt, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks again. Matt Cohen is the CEO of CyberArk. Coming up, are rents still rising or are they topping out? The nation's largest market could be showing signs of a top. We've got that plus the implications for inflation next. And despite all that, a warning from the Wall Street Journal that apartment buildings could be the next major pain point in commercial real estate. Well, that has REITs like Apartment Investment Management, Equity Residential, Avalon Bay, playing some defense, but still mostly higher for the week, leaking out half percent, quarter percent gains. This will be a spot to watch in the months to come. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Today's overall CPI print shows a cooling in price pressures, but not everywhere. For instance, rents are still up 8% from a year ago, and in Manhattan, they're hitting a fresh record high. Robert Frank joins us now with that story, Robert. Yeah, Manhattan is the largest market in the world for rentals, so this did have an impact and may continue to have an impact because rent for Manhattan apartments were $5,588 a month in July. That was a new record. Median rents also hitting a new record along with price per square foot. Every single measure hit a new record in July. Much of the U.S., as Kelly just mentioned, is seeing rents moderate or decline. Manhattan was up 9% over last year, 2% on the month. Rents are now 30% higher than they were pre-pandemic. This despite the fact that New York's population is now smaller and, of course, offices are half empty due to remote work. Now, the big reason for these high prices is that inventory remains historically low. Most of the new construction in New York right now is condos, and many would-be buyers are still camping out in the rental market. There are some hopeful signs, at least for renters. Inventory was actually up 11% in July, so that could start to ease some of those pricing pressures. And new leases, they actually fell 6% over last year. That suggests that renters have either reached their limit on affordability or they're looking elsewhere, just moving back in with their parents, probably. August is the peak rental month with back to school. So brokers say we can expect another month of records in August, then maybe a flattening out or even decline in the fall. So this could be the top, but we've been hearing that for the last six months. Fascinating because I've also been seeing a lot of reports, um, Fed research even indicating that rents overall are cooling pretty significantly. So is Manhattan a lagging indicator or just a, an island unto itself? I think it's a bit of a lagging indicator. It was late to the housing party, both on the rental side and the buying side out of the pandemic. Job growth, everything in Manhattan came back later than the rest of the country. So we've seen that wave sort of hit Manhattan later. So that could be part of it. Another part of it is just it's, it's a small, tight supply that's very controlled by some large institutional holders in Manhattan that own a lot of the apartments. So it's a little less flexible and less quick to react to market changes than other markets. Like Miami, like San Diego, exactly. although even those declines are, exactly. are only modest. Robert, thanks. Thank As you. As always, Robert Frank. Still ahead, shares of Fryer Battery lowered 
despite reporting a better than expected loss. The clean energy company also announcing some big C-suite changes. We'll talk to out. Oh, look, the shares are positive now. Uh, they must know Tom Jensen's coming on. He's the CEO. We'll talk to him next. Welcome back. Clean energy is supposed to be one of the strongest parts of the economy right now, but the gains aren't always evenly distributed. Take Nordic battery maker Fryer, which, Fryer, which just reported a better than expected quarterly loss, but the shares, they're up about 1% and down about 11% on the year. Fryer is a big recipient of government funds for clean energy projects, including a $100 million grant from the EU, and it's working on U.S. facilities as well. Let's welcome back Fryer's now outgoing CEO, Tom Jensen. Tom, first of all, is this our last uh, chat with you? I hope not, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be back here. Uh, always a pleasure to be on CNBC, and uh, I'd love to come back at any point you will have me. And you'll still be executive chairman, is that right? That is correct. So I'll be working uh, deeply with the incoming CEO. He's a seasoned veteran from the Norwegian tech uh, investment and scaling space. So we're super glad to have Bergerstein on board. Uh, he uh, led Microsoft in Norway and actually built up Microsoft also in Russia back in the day and has deep experience from semiconductor industry and have scaled businesses multiple times previously. So we're very fortunate to have him and I'm very glad to be the new chairman of the company and obviously appreciate the work that the previous chairman has done to take us to this level. Are you also redomiciling to the U.S.? And of course, I ask out of natural national interest um, because, it, you know, it, it's it is kind of gratifying, I guess, to sort of see all of this development that um, was incubated come here and look for a home and a major market opportunity. Absolutely. So we decided today and announced it that we are redomiciling the company from Luxembourg to the United States. This is driven in large part by uh, the fact that most of the capital that we have raised to date is coming from the U.S. market. We are, as you know, building Giga America in Georgia and benefiting, of course, from the poster child in terms of climate mitigation, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. So for us to redomicile to the U.S. And, and be eligible for all the indices and the passive investment funds is obviously a big thing for us. Yeah, and I love when the street's a little split on a company. It tells me that there's um, there's enough interesting things going on here. You know, you've got Morgan Stanley out there recently uh, upping their prospects for you got a $13 price target. Goldman a little bit more concerned about overcapacity and uh, profit margin pressures. Talk a little bit about that in the battery space right now. Yeah, you know, Kelly, battery is infungible, right? So it's it's kind of uh, starting to become more specialized. I think uh, we are seeing uh, that some are uh, mistaken in our opinion that EV batteries uh, and NMC or nickel-based batteries, uh, they are fearing that that will sort of float over to the energy storage space where we are, are focusing. So we're building uh, lithium-ion phosphate batteries for the energy storage space with, you know, long cycle life and ultra-low cost uh, so in our opinion, based on both our conversations in the market, as well as studies that we have commissioned, we don't see that oversupply capacity at all. And, and I do also think we need to bear in mind that there is going to be regional uh, security of supply considerations here, both in the U.S. and in Europe. I don't think uh, the European energy sector nor the electric vehicle sector will allow for too much dependency on Chinese imports over time. So I do think if you're able to scale a technology, you take it to sort of uh, cost competitive levels, I'm quite sure that uh, companies like us will will have a very interesting future. That's really interesting. And uh, Morgan Stanley, you know, excited about the next couple of months. Giga America. You, you're calling it Giga America and Giga Art. Elon Musk, man, he might just come after you and be like, no, Giga's our Giga's our trademark. 
<laughs> well, I think most people are calling their, their battery factories gigafactories. I think it's, of course, fundamentally important to build that scale. If you're not above that 10, 20 gigawatt hour mark in a gigafactory, you will struggle because yeah. you will have diseconomies of scale. So, but yeah, I mean, we're kind of starting on, on the letter A. So Arctic and America are two hmm. first project. So maybe we'll look for, for places that start with an A. Let's see. <laughs> no, and it's a reminder of the scale, like you said, that is necessary. Uh, the ambitions, uh, another A that everybody has in this space. Tom, it's great to check in with you today. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Tom Jensen is the CEO of Frayer. All right, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.